came to a line about her saying, in essence, God doesn't need my children. I need my children. And at that moment, boom, there was this giant crash and the lights went out in the building. Ranker from the Ohio State University Department of English. It is Saturday, February 27th, shortly after noon, and I am talking to my friend and colleague, Margaret Piat, who is the director of Piat Castle Makachik out in West Liberty, Ohio. And we're talking today as part of our series of oral histories about the recently recovered woman writer, and American poet, Sarah Morgan Bryan Piat. And uh, Sarah's acquisition of the name Piat came through marriage, of course. She was not born into the Piat family. She married into the Piat family. Her husband, John James Piat, was often known as JJ. And JJ was a first cousin to Don, with two N's, D-O-N-N, and Abram Piat, who lived at the town where Margaret now resides. And one of the things Margaret's going to talk to us about today is her family connection to the Piats, to the family that Sarah married into. And so please allow me to introduce Margaret. Margaret, thank you very much for talking with us today. You're most welcome. I'm delighted. Now, uh, I thought for starters, Margaret, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the Piat Castle, a little bit about the family and the land, and then we'll move into talking about how Sarah entered the family. Great. I'd love to. Let's start with the land. Uh, it's a very beautiful uh, landscape near West Liberty, hilly with a pretty stream that runs through it named, that was named Makachak uh, from the Shawnee people who had lived here before. And my great, great, great grandfather, Benjamin Piat, who lived in Cincinnati, uh, actually ended up receiving a parcel of land as a result of a law fee. And so he came up and looked at this land. He had grown up on a farm in New Jersey. He thought he wanted to return at middle age to some type of agricultural life. So he began selling land in Cincinnati and buying parcels around this other piece that he received. He ended up with a 1,700-acre farm Ooh. that included a gristmill, a small a, a gristmill, a sawmill, a, a large orchard, tenant houses, all kinds of activities. Uh, he was an entrepreneur and a lawyer who kept a law firm in Cincinnati as well as one here. So that's the land. He and his wife named their farm Makochik, and they anglicized it with hyphens and changed the spelling. Of course, no one knows, the Shawnee didn't spell it. And I can't really pronounce it in the correct way, but it was written as Makachak, and then they turned that to Makochik. Hmm. And they built a, a relatively modest home, and that's where they brought their family in 1828. So hmm. Abram, who was their 10th child, and Don uh, just before him, so Abram and Don were the youngest two, and I'm descended from Abram. So from so every generation uh, of Abram's descendants, most of them grew up on this land, including me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So so one of the things I'll mention for our listeners today 
is that um, one of the ways you ended up coming into this whole story about the rediscovery of Sarah Piot mm-hmm. um, is simply by way of the shared last name. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought I would mention to our listeners that, uh, and then we'll back up into more of the history, that um, as someone who has been teaching Piat now for 20 years um, and teaching her as a writer that mostly people have not heard of before. And of course, that's because she fell out of history. And so she's among this group of women writers um, who are undergoing very energetic recoveries now. And people are very interested in those stories of loss and recovery. But one of the things I've noticed over the past 20 years, teaching Piat and talking to people about her, is people in Ohio will often correct how I'm pronouncing the name. Um, they recognize through the way I talk that I'm not an Ohio native. <laughs> and I'm not. I'm from New York, although I've, I've lost believe it or not, I've lost a lot of my accent, but they can tell I'm an outsider. And they say, well, here we say it, Piat. Um, And what I usually say to them, and this comes from um, my own work with the first wave of Piat scholars, including Paula Bennett and Larry Michaels, Mm -hmm. and also just from getting to you know you, Margaret, over the past 20 years, is that in the academic world where Sarah Piat has been rediscovered, um, everyone says Piat. So as Sarah becomes a canonical writer, she's becoming canonical under that pronunciation of the family name. But I say to my students, I know a Piat descendant. And here in Ohio, this family says Piat. So Margaret, I'm throwing it to you. Please tell us about the pronunciation debates. It's a conversation I've probably had about a billion times. I bet, me too. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, growing up here, there was the divide already. Some of the descendants said Piat and some of the descendants said Piat. Uh-huh. And in both camps, some of them were capable of getting quite riled up on the topic. Oh, nice. Interesting. Yes. And I never really enjoyed that debate, but I, uh, we, we were often referred to as snobbish for using the pronunciation of Piat. And my father would retort that that was the French pronunciation and that the family came from France. So in his mind, that was the correct pronunciation. Now, I have come to believe that nobody can pronounce their own name incorrectly. Yes, that's my take. Yeah. So however you choose to pronounce it is fine. And as a young person, I moved to Massachusetts. So I, you know, also like you, got away from the Piat sound. My brother moved to California. And one thing that was interesting to us was that in both of our experiences for all the decades in which we lived in those other states on the coast, everybody we met either said Piat or they said, how do you pronounce your name? So, but, so nobody said Piat, but then I began to observe that it wasn't only Ohio, but Indiana and Illinois, you know, the whole sort of Midwestern section, they said Piat. And then later on in life, I learned that there are a lot of origins for this name. There's an Italian name, Piatti, with two T's and an I. Sure. The French name is P-I-A-T, P-I-A-T. not with a double T. Okay. We do know that the original Piat, or you know, who knows, they make a big deal about the original Piat, like there was only one ever who came to this country. <laughs> but John, who came, they called him John of France. He left France and lived for a, a period of time in Holland, where there is a name P-Y-A-T, P-Y-O-T, you know, pi at, pi at. 
Okay. And so, so when we end up with a name that has two T's and an I, an IA, two T's, I don't quite know if the second T would change the way the double vowel sound is made. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have Piat, Piot, Piot, Piotti. It just seems like there's a lot of variation. So I came to believe that it was more cultural and that maybe more people in the central Midwest said Piat because there were more people here who had come from from Dutch and German uh, ancestry. And so that sounded more correct to them. Now, I, I cannot prove this theory, but this is something I came to wonder. But ultimately, I have just said to anybody who asks, you know, there's just a lot of different ways to say a name. Yeah, okay, that's that's so helpful. And I have to say my thinking about it, uh, of course, as an outsider to the family, but someone who cares about how we introduce Sarah to the public, um, I'm really compelled by your account, which is nobody can mispronounce their own name. Right. And, and you know, you are a direct descendant of Abram. Mm-hmm. And Abram was JJ's first cousin. And do you think it's extremely likely that the pronunciation you inherited came through your dad and his ancestors and so on? Well, I, I think it comes from my dad. And then one of the things I wonder about is the generation before that. My, I know a little about my grandparents. They they died in the influenza epidemic. Wow. Oh, how timely today. I know. I know. I feel it all the time. And he was raised by his two aunts. Listen to me say aunts. That's not how you say it in Ohio. (laughs) So he was raised by them. And I have had people come up and say, well, you know, they said Piat. And I've heard other people say, well, you know, they said Piat. So so I don't know. I think that in some ways uh, people enjoy continuing on the debate and the argument but my father was pretty vehement about it being Piat. Some have suggested to me that it was my mother who wanted wanted the French pronunciation. Huh. And if that is true, I have to say she would be smiling upon me right now because she was an English professor. And so if if through another English professor, her her pronunciation went, <laughs> she would be very, very happy. But I would say that, you know, one of the things I can think of is that as persuasive as my mother could be, it's hard for me to convince, to believe that she could convince my father and his brother to change the pronunciation of their names to satisfy her. Yeah. So all I could say is that all three of them, we, my, my father's brother uh, lived with us. So I was raised with these three adults and they all said Piat. Okay. And so that's what I say. And I'll also admit quickly that I don't really know what Sarah and JJ said. I don't know what Don and Abram said. I don't know how this split occurred. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wouldn't think that it was so important if it were just what other people said. But if you ask descendants, some of Abram's descendants say Piat and some <laughs> say Piat. Interesting. So I would love to know how that split occurred. And at one point, I said to my daughter, whose last name is Piat uh, Eckert with a hyphen, I said to her, if we learn someday that that Don and Abram and the ones we study all the time really said Piat, what do you think we should do? And she said, I'm still a Piat. So, <laughs> okay. right. well, so I'm taking it to my grave, too. We're going to consider that the final word, at least for today. All right. And of course, uh, Margaret, uh, just I'll just say for our listeners, you and I are in regular touch as new family letters turn up and so on as part of this recovery. And if I ever stumble on anything where people are talking about pronunciation in a letter we hadn't known about, I will be sure to share it. 
Oh, may I interject something? There is one thing. There is a cartoon of Don Peon, a, a derogatory cartoon by Nast, by the famous cartoonist Nast, oh, in which he calls him Don the Pirate. Ah. And, I, and that made me wonder, because ah. pirate sounds a lot more like Piat than it does like Piat. Very interesting. So yeah. that's, that's the thing that first made me question uh, my mother and father's dominance in their pronunciation. Um, but I still think, you know, it was a French family. And so I'm keeping the French pronunciation. All right. Well, let's let's go on to our next topic. Then this is often um, in my in these interviews. This is the one of the early questions I ask everybody, which is, um, you know, you're a public historian, Margaret, and you're living there on these um, these lands that belong to family members. But how did you first become aware that Sarah Piat was somebody? Um, and tell if you tell us that story, it's always very interesting to listeners. I will. I feel like I almost always know it. Well, the, what I, what I talked before about Benjamin and Elizabeth and their their land, uh, their two sons Don and Abram. When Don and Abram were adults, middle aged adults, they each built a, a large Victorian homes on this land, made out of limestone, which was quarried from the farm. So these are immensely organic buildings in a sense that they sit on hilltops on ridges opposite each other with a beautiful valley between them mm. with a wonderful creek which ends up being in lots of the poetry and um and uh, paintings that are part of what we have here and they named their homes Makachik and Makochi so further derivations of that original Shawnee word and so these homes I mean they're Victorian houses but because they're stone and they have towers and they sit on hills they looked to people like castles. So early on, they were referred to as Piat's Castle or Piat's Castle. What year are we talking about? What year were they built, Margaret? The older one, the one that I still am in now, where I am sitting right now, is was started in 1864 and finished in 1871. Okay. And that was Abram's home. Uh, Abram's Abram was married. He had uh, eight children. The, his wife died. The Civil War began. He fought in the war. He came back to return to farming, he remarried, and then he built this house. So it was, you know, in the later part, he was 50 years old when it was finished. Actually, it was finished 150 years ago this year. Oh, exciting. And he was 50 at the time. Wow. So he's the younger brother, but he built his home first. Okay. Now, his older brother, Don, who was the well-known writer, Don had a small piece of the family estate. You know, when the, when the farm got divided, Abram got the lion's share as he went into the to farming. Don traveled extensively, lived in other places, and had a small a small portion where he built a home he named Makochi. And then his first wife died. He later married again, spent time in Washington, D.C., and at some point decided he was going to retire from that public life. And then he came back and added a stone front onto this lovely Gothic cottage that had been built before. And so the Gothic cottage was built in 1866. The stone front with two towers was begun in 1879 and finished in 1881. So the quick answer is they were finished 10 years apart. Okay. And so they're very contemporary, but they have very different styles to them. To many people, they look the same because the stone unifies them, but their outside, their architectural details are different and their interior designs are different. So my family, you know, my father and uncle ended up being the two who owned this building. And they were already the third generation to give tours of this house. Wow. So I, sometimes when I talk to our visitors, I will say, we're, 
know, think of it as a family with seven generations on a piece of land. Five generations lived in this building, but four of them lived in it while it was open for tours. And at that point, it stops being normal right? yeah. <laughs> because that's just an yeah. unusual way to grow up. It's a it's a self-conscious way to grow up, I would say. Hmm. Now, now Makochi had a very different history. Uh, Don and, and Ella did not have any children. Don died and Ella, his widow Ella, kept it for a few years. Ella Kirby Piat, I should say. She was a remarkable person I the that we'd love to have more people discover her, her drawings and, you know, her interests, her influences. And she kept the building for a few years and then sold it and built another house and then gave that away and built another house. Ella loved architecture. And then towards the end of her life, she ended up in, in the original house with her nephew, her husband's nephew's family. And for that reason, her papers came here. A lot of her possessions came here. A lot of things that had belonged to Don and Ella came here. Meanwhile, the building, the first owner had it as a, a sanitarium for people to go and relax. It was kind of, it was not a tuberculosis sanitarium. It was for hmm. people who were suffering from neurasthenia or stress. Okay. It was lovely. It was lovely. You could play croquet. You could relax. You could read. You could chat. That only lasted for a few years. That was Dr. Thoman from Columbus. When he died, the property was sold to a man named Graham Dinmead, who was a farmer, who was interested in the farmland. And he didn't really have an intention with the building. But by that time, Makachik had already opened for tours. So eventually, Mr. Dinmead gave in and opened Makochi for tours as well. And I think all while my father was growing up, there was this quest to have both buildings, to tell the stories of the two families together. And that finally became available in 1956 when the next owner... Uh, a, a wonderful, interesting woman named Cameron Turner, who was a collector. And she purchased the building from Mr. Dinmead. He kept the farmland, but she purchased four acres around the building as a museum mm. and as a museum of her collections of things. So when she died, uh, my parents and uncle bought the property, the four acres and Makochi. And I was at that time uh, five years old. So okay. the first time, I mean, I, I am not aware of remembering the building before then, but I do remember coming, going over to Makochi while they were settling the deal and playing outside and, you know, exploring the rocks and really enjoying it. And so it wasn't too much later than that, maybe by the time I was six or seven years old, that they had opened it up for tours. And there in the library ceiling were four portraits and I was told, you know, as a six-year-old with, with great authority, I was told that one of them was Bret Hart, who was a very popular writer, and I should read him someday. And the other three were family members. Don's first wife, Louise, who was a writer, and his cousin, John James, and John James's wife, Sarah, and they were both poets. So one of my earliest memories was to look at those paintings in the ceiling and be told these people were poets. Wow. And, and, you know, I didn't really think what that meant to me, but in retrospect, having, being told these people are important because they're poets, mm. it's really pretty nice. I wow, think. that's great. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, especially for me, you know, with my <laughs> poetry, it's really exciting to hear that story. Do we know who painted those? Well, Oliver Frey was the fresco artist and he actually painted the ceilings in both buildings. Oh, now he didn't work alone. He had a crew and I, and I don't, I can't verify that he was the one who did the portraits because, you know, they're, 
their portraits. They're not stenciled designs or trompoid designs or any of the other kind of methods that he used in both buildings. Okay. And it is the only space in these two buildings with multiple rooms that had fresco art. It is the only one that has portraits in it. And they're in clearly in the library. Wow. Really. Yeah. Yeah, do we have any, um, is there any record, any comment by Abram or Don about deciding to paint those portraits? I have not found it. Wow, uh, interesting. I frequently read and reread and go back to sections of the original biography written about Don, which his widow Ella commissioned, and it was it was published through his, through Belford, his publisher, and uh Um, I'm just looking at my bookshelf quickly because I was going to pull that out. Are you, are you talking about the Miller biography? Oh, yeah. Yes. Written okay. By okay. Yes. And of course, let's just mention for those who are interested that we have a recent biography of Don by Peter Bridges. Yes. And, and uh, this, the original uh, biography has a whole section, a whole chapter on Makuchi and it does describe many details, but it doesn't really say anything about the portraits. And then Peter Bridges, who, became interested in Don because of Don's brief work, um, you know, with the American legation in France in the 1850s. And Peter was interested in ambassadors. He was writing about ambassadors, thought Don was a, a complicated and interesting fellow and decided to write a biography. This is so wonderful for all of us. Yes. because He went all over the country looking up sources about Don. Now Don was his subject, but of course in the process, he brought to light a lot of other documents that have helped us in a number of ways. Yes. And before we um, turn back to the question about, um, I appreciate hearing that story about when you first heard about Sarah and uh, when you were just a child, we'll come back to that in a second, but let me just mention, cause this is an opportune moment that um, when we look back at the Piat family members and in-laws and descendants and so on, um, the, the point you're making about Don and what an influential writer he was in his own day, um, he's another figure who has uh, fallen out of cultural memory and really deserves to be rediscovered and discussed. And so that's one of the reasons why I think that Peter Bridges biography is, is just such a great addition to what we know. And, and let me just add now, because we're about to turn to Sarah and JJ, that, you know, JJ was a diplomat. Mm -hmm. Eventually, he was mm -hmm. sent by the United States government as U.S. consul to Cork, Ireland. And because he and Sarah already had multiple children who moved with them to Ireland, mm -hmm. several of their sons stayed behind. When Sarah and JJ came back in 1893, they also became diplomats. Um, you know, and an Irish... Um, an Irish scholar uh, has published uh, an important essay. This goes back to what you were saying about Peter Bridges, about um, the diplomatic service in Ireland. And the Piat's come up in her story. So, you know, in that case, it's not only JJ. It's also several of their sons. And so this whole international world that the Piat's were involved in with diplomacy and journalism and so on is just so interesting. And their story's well worth telling. I think so, too. And I'll share in case I haven't said it to you that I was having a discussion at one point with a Civil War historian. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned, you know, um, who I was working on. And he said, uh, you know, is that is that the Don Piat family? And, and I said, yes. And he said, oh, Don Piat was at the center of everything in that era. Yeah. And nobody knows who he is anymore. Yeah. Um, so anyway, 
uh, let's let's come back to Sarah now. So you had heard Sarah's name as a little kid mm-hmm. because of those portraits. And mm-hmm. then tell us the story about how during the, the Sarah Piot is a great poet rediscovery period, you started hearing her name in a new way. Well, uh, you know, I said her name a lot of times because I became a teenage tour guide. Ah, and, okay. And that's uh, an important part of my life. It, uh, I didn't really like history. I liked story. I liked literature. I liked storytelling. I liked theater. I didn't like history. I thought it might be because I was forced to pretend to like it. But in fact, I said these words over and over again. And so I can't even tell you how many times I told other people that she was a well-known poet in the 19th century. And, and occasionally I would poke around in the library and house history of Ohio has a little profile on JJ and Sarah. So that that gave me some confidence I wasn't just lying because by the time I was a teenager, I, I began to believe that my father exaggerated. <laughs> right? And in fact, he told me once that Don Piat was famous and I just decided that might not be true. Yeah. And I will come back to what you asked, but let me just digress for a second. Many years later, when I began looking at primary sources and came across a scrapbook that Ella had kept of obituaries of Don, and they were published in every major newspaper in the United States, yeah. all the way to California, Oregon, you know, everywhere. Yep. I suddenly thought Don Piat was famous yes. and, and daddy did not exaggerate. So these other poets must be great too. Well, I, you know, when I've when I got out of high school, I just wanted to get away from this as fast as possible. And after college, uh, I went to Massachusetts where I thought I would teach or direct theater. That was my passion and, and my subject matter, not history. And I ended up finding a job at Old Sturbridge Village, which was a living, it is a living history museum in Sturbridge, Massachusetts. And I just fell for the place. We were an excellent match. I, I stayed there for a while and went to graduate school, worked other places and then came back. So I just mentioned that because I spent 20 years working in that museum and felt a strong association with the place for 35 years. And during that time period, right after college, I joined a literature system, a, lit- a literary group. We were afraid that now that we were out of college, we would not continue to read. So we, we joined this group and we took turns picking, picking pieces. And I started that in 73, came back after graduate school and joined it again. It was still going. It is still going. It has been oh. going since 1973 and I miss wow. it. But in 1990, we read a, a, a mystery. Um, it was a real, it's a story by A.S. By A.S. A, excuse me, I'm sorry. A.S. Byatt? A.S. Byatt, yes, by A.S. Byatt. And I was so taken with it because I actually really love English murder mysteries. But the two main characters in this were an American and an English scholar who were chasing around after some important documents trying to discover important information about individuals. And it eventually gets them connected, working as a team, and they arrive at this large stone mansion on a hillside in the country where some strange ancient descendants live. And they come to this place and they knock on the door and they want to talk to the descendants. And the descendants who have gotten sick of people wanting to come and talk to them bar the door and will not let them in. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember when we read this in my literature group, I said, because by that point, I had embraced the love of scholarship and I worked with lots of historians and I realized I adored history. And I, I understood that all of this that I had grown up with 
had a lot more complexity to it than I knew. And I kind of craved to get back into it at some point. So I said to my friends, someday some scholars are going to come to my door and I'm going to let them in. And that was really the beginning because Paula Bennett came to my door. I wasn't at the door. I was still in Massachusetts, but she 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 came to me and, and I I'm trying to remember how she even approached me. I, I Well, you know, I, I can share um what Paula has told me if if you would like to hear that story. I would I'd love to hear it. Yes. So, so this is, and let's remind our listeners too, because so much of these, um, this oral history series is about, um, you know, how do you acquire knowledge? Uh, you know, what does it mean, especially when you're talking about something like a recovery project like this, and where basically nobody knows anything and you have to reach back into the past? How do you acquire knowledge? I mean, it's a such an important question. And especially when, um, there's kind of a default understanding, I think, among a lot of people today that the way you do that is you just Google it. And of course, you know, most most stuff isn't on Google, right? And so how do you create knowledge? Now, um, we're all historians. Um, we're all interested in literary history and American history and world history and so on when, when we end up doing these interviews. And um, so I just want to flag the fact that right now what I'm stating is not something I experienced. I'm telling a story that I got from Paula Bennett. And uh, when I tell the story, Margaret, we'll see if it's the way you remember it, too. So um, it'll help me remember it. <laughs> and, and I'll also mention that, um, you know, and, and, and my colleague curator, Jolie Braun, also interviewed me for this series. And I told the story about how I came to start working on Sarah Piat um, and how I met Paula Bennett. Right. So um <laughs> Paula Bennett's story is that um, she was taking a road trip and driving across the state of Ohio, stopped at a fast food restaurant. And in the uh, stack of brochures on the table, you know, with the salt and pepper shaker, there was a brochure for Piat Castles. (laughs) I don't think I knew that. (laughs) And she was already, she already had her eye on Sarah Piat. And she picked up the brochure and she now says she thinks it was fate. She picked up the brochure and she thought, I have to get in touch with these people and see if there's a connection with Sarah. And that was what led her to you. That's Paula's story. All right. That's really interesting. That is so interesting. About the brochure when she actually contacted you, but, but that's the story she told me. Well, you know, I don't remember the brochure part, but I really love that. And if, uh, if the pronunciation of Piat would make my mother happy, a brochure on the highway would make my father happy <laughs> because he was a total tourist booster and you can't promote enough. So, so there you go. There's another little part that I recall. There was a scholar at, at Sturbridge named Caroline Sloat who left to go work at the American Antiquarian Society. And I think that she had known about my, my willingness to open the doors to scholars. And Paula went there at the point when Caroline was working there. And I think Caroline had only recently begun. And so she um, she was greeting uh, Paula and they were organizing how her stay was going to be. And then Paula mentioned to her that she was studying Sarah, Sarah Piat and Caroline was so excited and so thrilled. And she had heard that story and then she knew me. And so I remember there was that connection too. Okay. But and I don't, I mean, I feel like I had a, a live conversation with Paula, but I think it was actually years before that happened. But 
she and I began to communicate. And of course, at, at that time, my, my father had died. Um, my brother was in charge, but he wasn't living here either. We had resident managers. And so I made arrangements with them to let her in. So all the time that she was here and we had started an archive. I mean, that had happened earlier. My, my brother and some of his friends had really just gone through the third floor and begun gathering things. And so both of us shared this quest to want to know more. And then in a phase of a project that we called Get the Documents Out of the Dirt, you know, we both eventually began trying to organize things and then moving to have, have an archive. And if that hadn't already started, I'm not sure that Paula would have had too much to look at. But she came here and she began going through Don Piat's, um, probably the Capitol, which was his Washington, D.C. newspaper, but also probably the Makachik Press to some degree and any other of his papers that we had. So it started with Paula. And then I don't, you know, I, I do not like to admit that my memory is now failing me because I used to be so sharp on these kinds of details. But through through her, I, I think I, I, did I come to you next or to Larry Michaels next? Maybe so, you... um, now. So, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit for our, our listeners who might not have been able to listen to all the other interviews yet. But um, it turns out that several um, several researchers and scholars independently of one another, this is an important part of the story, independently of one another, but all around the same time got interested in Sarah Piat and they all pegged her as what one of them called the great undiscovered poet of the American 19th century. Now, this is a fantastic story. My students love it. And I often, and they say, why, why did this all happen at the same time? And I say, you know, um, all I can do about that is, is speculate. And my hunch is that first of all, you already had um, starting really with a lot of energy in the early 1980s during the Cannon Wars. Mm -hmm. You had this robust effort to go back into the past looking for um, women writers who had fallen out of history. And by the mid 90s, when is, which is when this happened, when, when independently people start saying all these women writers are important, but this one is important in a unique way. That's the mid-90s. And my own hunch is that there had been enough recovery by that point that um, people had started to recognize patterns in women's voicing and so on and saw the ways that Sarah was different. Mm -hmm. um, but whatever, whatever was the case, around the mid-90s, you had several people independently honing in on Sarah um, and so Larry Michaels, Larry R. Michaels, uh, published a selected edition of Sarah's poems in 1999. Paula Burnett Bennett, who was also working on a selected edition of Sarah's poems, uh, published hers in 2001. And um, a faculty member at Dartmouth and one of his undergraduate students. This is also a great story. So this is William Spengeman at Dartmouth and his undergraduate student, Jessica Roberts, who will be doing an interview in this uh, series, an upcoming one. As an undergraduate, she was working with Spengeman as her um, advisor. And one of the things this led to was not only um, Jess Roberts' undergraduate thesis, but they co-authored a a Penguin paperback edition of 19th century American poets and included a section of Piat in, and that's 1996. Wow. 
So all these things happened at the same time. It's a great story. And I say to my students, you know, the only analogy I can give you from history is that all the histories of mathematics say that the calculus, they call it the calculus, which I love, the calculus was independently discovered at the same time by uh, Leibniz and Newton. And first of all, as a non-mathematician, I love the idea that something in math is discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and also they discovered it at the same time. So that's my analogy for what happened with Sarah. So so Larry, I can only guess, Margaret, but I'd like to hear your uh, recollections. My thought is with the dates that those editions came out, Bennett's in 2001, Larry's in um, 1999, they must have been coming to the castles around the same time. I, I think, well, I think that Paula was here earlier. Oh, okay. I think she was, because I don't recall ever being here when she was here. And I do recall being here with Larry. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, but one other thing I want to say, it just goes back to that novel possession, because there were those scholars who came to the same topic at the same time, and that's in 1990. And so then wow. here we have the reality matching uh, the literature of the 90s. But I think that your your analysis of the dis- rediscovery of women's poets makes great sense, too. And I, I think the 90s, were a really important time in my life where I became more and more engaged in thinking about women's history and the anti-slavery movement and the suffragette movement. And so much of those were the topics that we were exploring at Ulster Bridge Village. But then I always still loved the literature. And so this all just, it just kept, it just kept expanding. Now I had a really busy life at that time, but already my husband and I were focused on the fact that at some point, and before we hit the bicentennial of Ohio statehood, some point by then we were going to move to Ohio. And so also in 1999, we bought the house next door to Makochi. And this is a house that had connections to the property, which I don't need to go into, but we we bought it. And Jim began working on it in 1999 and spending more time out here. Mm-hmm. And then we moved in February of 2002. And so, but, but I had stopped working at Sturbridge Village and worked as an educational consultant. So in the late nineties and in the early, early aughts, I traveled a lot and had a lot more free time to, to come here. And my mother was here in a nursing home and not very well. So I came to Ohio often. And I think on one of those times I met Larry and to meet Larry is to love Larry. Yeah, absolutely. He is, such a deep and kind person. And so I was quite taken with him. And, you know, my, my actual real love is public programming. And so I think of myself as a museum educator, and this is the, the blend of history and theater. And so I always want to try to figure out how to make things happen. Uh, and, and, and how to make things happen in historic settings is even more exciting. And so I, I do recall that we very early on, and I don't recall the date, but it was probably around that time, invited Larry to do a poetry reading. It was, it was after we moved here. And I know we were living in the house next door. So it was after 2002 and it was in the summertime. And it was a very dramatic moment because we had assembled it. We were going to have it on the west side of Makochi where, where the sun would be setting. And it had been a very dry summer and it never rained at all. And about 30 minutes before we were to begin, the fellow who lives up on the hill came down and told me that the farmer's almanac said it was going to rain. And I poo-pawed it because there was a blue sky. And then five minutes before we were to begin, the sky blackened. So we rushed all of the chairs inside the building. And I instantly figured out how to do this and filled up this large front hall and a secondary hall and put Larry at the apex with, with the doors open to the sunset 
and Larry began to recite poetry. And he had such a beautiful manner. I'd never seen this done before where he would read some of it, step out of it, explain a little bit, but never too much, just enough to keep you in the rhythm of the poem and then take you back to it. He does and that. he was reciting a poem, and I don't know which one it was. Maybe uh, maybe Elizabeth, who has his book here, is going to be looking it up. But he was talking about Sarah in some level defying God for taking her children away from her. And he was discussing how, how she talked. in through these poems, she addressed topics that women weren't supposed to write about, weren't supposed to say. I was so taken with this. And he, he just came to a line about her saying, in essence, God doesn't need my children. I need my children. And at that moment, boom, there was this giant crash and the lights went out in the building. And because I had closed the doors to the rooms, because I didn't want people distracted looking into the rooms, this entire audience is sitting in total darkness. And Larry, without missing a beat, said a little joke about maybe God was listening. And then he went over to the door and finished the poetry reading with the light as we sat during this thunderstorm. And so that was my first, my first of many uh, Sarah Piat public programs at Makochi. Wow, that's an outstanding story. And you're right, I was, I was ferreting in my books while you were telling that story, because one of the things that I've started doing in these interviews is, as people recall different poems, a lot of times I say, oh, I think maybe I know the one you're talking about, and it gives us a chance to introduce listeners to some of the poems. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, in our public culture today, a lot of people are unfamiliar with poetry, And so this is a great opportunity to um, get them connected with some of Sarah's individual poems and and why they're so great. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure, uh, Margaret, that the poem you're talking about is one called No Help. Um, And it's a poem that I know uh, Larry is, of course, a dear friend and colleague of mine. And I know that Larry really uh, loves this poem in particular. But the context in the poem is that the speaker of the poem has lost uh, uh, an infant, And it's a poem of mourning and it's a poem of rage against God. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the lines that you're recalling, Margaret, possibly tell me if this sounds right. Um, At the end of the poem, the speaker says, um, do I want a little angel? No, I want my baby. Um, She's responding here to the standard consolations of the day when you suffered the loss of a child, which was, of course, extremely common at this time, Mm -hmm. that people would offer the Christian consolation that your child was in heaven. And and Sarah's just rejecting that. Does this sound like the right one? Absolutely. And it goes back to what I was describing as his his reading style, because, you know, I remember the line. I, I remember that line as you say it. But then I remember him commenting on it. And it was it was absolutely the sort of rage of don't don't you tell me that this is what God wants. But but, you know, Larry would read the line and then pause and let you feel it. Yeah. yeah. And then he would comment on it by just sort of restating it. And so I I've so blended his style together in my memory of that experience, um, because uh, I was with I was with Sarah on this argument, but we weren't sure what this thunderclap and the blackness meant. But it turned out to be really an interesting night. And another thing I'd like to say about Larry, he was really the first one to introduce me to the individual poems. And it's because he's just such a gifted and natural teacher. You know, he we made the discovery that my daughter 
and Sarah Piot were born on the same day, August exactly. 11th. And so we were very, uh, he was very sweet about that. And then he would start suggesting a poem that maybe she would like, depending on how old she was at the time that, uh, that we would talk about this. And there was one, uh, called, I think that she was in high school and there was a, a, a poem about a, a dress, a, a dance dress. Um, Her first know, party. The, all right. Very. And so he, and he, 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 pardon. It's a great poem. It's a very great comment. He had made a copy of that and gave it to me to give to her from him, which oh, nice. was also so smart because she was a teenager. And so she liked it because it, it wasn't for me, but it's really about a mother and daughter. And it's very funny. Yeah. And another one that he told me about is the ghost, uh-huh. which uh, we developed a literary, a literature based Halloween program at Makochi that was called ghost and goblins literature to scare and delight. And we frequently, if almost every year, performed the ghost in one way or another. And it's also a quite enchanting, enchanting poem that helps you discover where fear really is. Well, this is another opportunity to, um, we'll just um, make another comment about uh, the, the poem about the party. And in different publications, it was called The First Party or Her First Party. But it is hilarious. It is. It's not only really deep about the, very deep about the relationship between a mother and a daughter, but it's funny. And I want to say that to our listeners, because, you know, we just talked about a, a poem of tremendous grief and mourning. And Sarah's an incredibly intense person, very emotionally deep, very emotionally aware. And she writes out of those depths. But she's also hysterically funny. Mm-hmm. And, and you see the range um, in her poems. And it's another way of remembering she was a popular poet. I mean, she spoke to her age and. Um, these are some of the kinds of, uh, you know, voices we can bring back to readers today and they and they find them very powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, but, Margaret, I want to back up a minute to something you said a few minutes ago. It came out of you naturally as an inhabitant uh, <laughs> family home. But our readers won't know what your our listeners won't know what you meant. You said um, something like um, uh, Paula went up to the third floor. Okay. <laughs> okay. So tell us about, I've been on the third floor. Tell us about the third floor. It sounds like there might be ghosts there. Oh, well, there probably are. <laughs> well, again, to help people not get too confused between the buildings. And I say that because people who are standing here get confused between the two buildings. So Makochi where is the home where Don lived. And that's where Larry gave the poetry reading. And we had this dramatic experience. And I think we'll want to come back to that and talk about some of the other programs related to Sarah's poetry that we had at Makochi. Good idea. Now, now Makochi is the first castle where the multiple generations lived. And the, the, it's an interesting building and it's sort of a blocky kind of building. It has three floors. I mean, there's some sections that have sort of low ceilings with two floors and other sections that have high ceilings with two floors. And then one section that has a third floor and then a tower. And so you know, it's, it would be a good castle to make out of Legos because it's just very blocky and the, the heights of it keep changing. So it's it's really design comes in the roof treatments, which are these um, sort of empire style roofs with, you know, windows that come out of slate, slate sided uh, slants. And so the third floor is one large room and we don't know what the original intention was. We do know that Abram Piot, who was a, an active member in the Grange, held his Grange meetings in this room. And one of the things I've learned from other sources is that oftentimes before there were many public halls, 
wealthier people who had big houses would often have a large room that became a place where people gathered for meetings. It was often on a second floor. And we've wondered if in fact, this wasn't why he wanted this on the third floor, because I've since learned there was a big debate going on in town about the fact that there was no excellent hall to meet in. And that kind of eventually led to building an opera house. But at any rate, he had this large room and it had a platform in the middle of it against one wall, maybe about eight inches up. So it was like a little bit of a stage. The strange thing about it, though, it was never finished. So by that, I mean, there's plaster walls. It was plastered, but they were never painted. They were never uh, painted. They were never wallpapered. They were never decorated. And it's not clear even how often it was used. Maybe because that opera house was built. I never thought of that till I said that. But we know the Grange went up there. And you get to the third floor by going up the tower. So it's really kind of an interesting uh, circular stairs that goes around a water tank that fed to a really early bathroom. And it's just such an interesting combination of art and science, you know, as you go up to this third floor. And very early on, it became the attic. You know, I mean, if, if you start to examine the walls, you see that there's lots of Abrams grandchildren and great grandchildren who wrote on the walls. And that stopped around 1909, right after Abram died. So I, I'm curious about that. I'm curious if kids played up there and it didn't become an attic until later. So I am still trying to understand that room. Yeah. Uh, but it was above ground archaeology, absolutely, because the older things were farther back and the newer things were later, including wow. my things, you know. And so uh, there were just trunks of stuff. So it would almost be like anybody else. You have something, you don't want to throw it away. You don't know what to do with it. You put it in a box and you put it in the attic. Yeah. It's just that this space doesn't feel like an attic in some ways because it has about a 12 foot ceiling and it has these wonderful windows all around it. And it's just, you know, you look at it and imagine what a great New York loft this would be. Right? And so it's still, you know, it's still a fabulous space that has a future, I hope, that is beyond just storage. And we've begun in, in fits and spurts to try to get all these documents out of there. And so much of it had gone into the archive that I described before, but there are still things. And so Susan and Larry and others have come down and have helped helped us um, several times a year, just try to bring more things down. And in the last couple of years, we've probably brought about 500 more documents down. Most of these that we've looked at, I would really say all of these we've looked at, have been from later generations. There's an awful lot of material from the 1920s and 30s, which is interesting to me now because I'm trying to write a history of the two castles as museums. Oh, outstanding. So that's, that's sort of my retirement job. But, but these are materials for that. But we haven't really, we keep hoping we're going to find more about Sarah and JJ, but we haven't yet. So that's the third part. One of my questions about that. And again, as you know, I've been out and been in that space and, um, we spent some days, you know, looking through boxes and trunks and um, let's let's turn for a minute, if we can, to the Capitol. Um, now, you mentioned earlier that Paula came out and looked at the Capitol and, and we can see that the, the Paula Bennett papers um, are in our archive here at Ohio State, generously donated by Paula. And one of the things you can see in those records is Paula and her graduate students, including Pamela Kinchelow. Um, whom I hope to interview for this series as well, working on poems that um, poems of Sarah's that Don published in the Capitol, including poems on the first page. And um, 
I'm realizing, Margaret, one of the things I don't know about that story is when, uh, and I know Larry also worked with the Capitol poems at the castles, uh, but did you already know that the Capitol was up there? I mean, did you point them to the Capitol or did they find it or how did that go? Well, actually, the Capitol wasn't on the third floor. Oh, so, they, okay. so they didn't go up there. The, the archive the archive has been on the second floor and initially it was in the back section of the house where we, where I am now and where we lived as, as when I was growing up. And then those spaces later became offices. Okay. But the Capitol, I knew about the Capitol because it was, there was a pile of these bound newspapers on the floor and on top of the pile was a box, I don't know what this is called, but it's a box that had drawers with glass fronts to hold different kinds of paper, fool's cap and so forth. And in a photograph that was taken for Don's biography, it shows his den in Makuchi, and this box is in that photograph. Nice. And so by at some point, I think I'll, a detail I missed was that between after college and a few years of working in the museum and then after graduate school and before the next job, I was back here for about a year. And that's when I started looking at the, at the primary sources. And so I started looking at these photographs and looking at what we had and, and realizing that all of my life, this stack of newspapers had been in a corner in an exhibit room, in a room that people walked through with this box on top of it. And as terrible as that sounds, that box really in some ways helped because that weight holding it kept the dust out of wow. these newspapers. Wow. And, and even I, I went to graduate school at, in, in Washington, D.C. I went to George Washington in museum education. And I went to the Library of Congress to look up the Capitol at that point. So I already by that point was focused on Don and his life in Washington and the Capitol being an important newspaper. And I knew that we had copies and I knew they had copies and I didn't think there were many anywhere else. The other newspapers that were in there were the Makachik Press. Now, there was one copy that my, my father always had out on exhibit. And so we talked about that on tour in Makachik. And he would mention that Don had this other paper called the Capitol. So at some point, we, we got the box off and we got them up off the floor and we got them into the archive. And that's actually where Paula and Larry looked at them. I see. Okay. And so one thing I want to add um, at this point in our talk, both about the Capitol and about um, something else you just referred to, the Mackachie Press. Going back to what we said earlier about knowledge, how do we build knowledge? Where does it come from? Um, let's mention for our listeners that the Capitol is an extremely rare newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, very few copies of it have survived. And um, I mentioned earlier that I entered the um, story of the Piat recovery as what I call a second wave scholar. I was standing on the shoulders of people like Paula Bennett and Larry and uh, William Spengeman and Jess Roberts and so on. Um, and after uh, we were fortunate enough here at um, the Rare Books and Manuscripts Library at Ohio State to acquire Paula Bennett's research papers, followed by Larry Michael's research papers, um, I turned to Paula at one point, I was trying to build these library collections, and I said to Paula, what should I do next? And the very first thing Paula said to me was, get the capital. So now, Margaret, you already know this story, but our listeners don't. Um, you know, I came to you because the capital, there is not a, a substantial run of the capital anywhere in the world except for at your house. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
this is a great story to tell people about knowledge. And, you know, and, and so I came to you, as you know, and uh, you very generously loaned us your full run of the capital, which exists nowhere else, just scattered issues here and there. You've got the whole thing. And and I don't know if you remember this, but it's a story I'll never forget. I, I was out at the, the castles one day some kind of research with you and and as I was leaving you said wait a minute I've got the capital for you and you had all the boxes for me to take my Volvo station wagon and uh and I you know when I got home that was a Friday and I tell people when I got home I was so aware that I had this you know unique archive irreplaceable and I couldn't deliver it to the library until Monday morning so you know I put it in a spot in my house with tarps under and over it and, you know, multiple layers of protection in case there was some sort of surprise leak in my house or something like that. But, you know, then the libraries was able to digitize that and it's now available free to the public. Thanks to you. So please allow me to publicly thank you, Margaret. Irreplaceable and so important in Sarah's early career, as well as a rare, important document about Don's life and about reconstruction politics in Washington, D.C. Oh, you know, you know, I'm, I, I take your, your thanks, and I'm so appreciative. And I realize, you know, having worked in professional museums, I realize in some ways what a mom-and-pop two-bit place the castles are. But I also realize what amazing gems they are. And it, it's always been sort of frustrating to me. And this is what happened when I worked in all these other museums. I kept thinking, we have everything. We have all these stories. We have all these documents. We have all these objects and what we just don't have is the funding to run this as a more professional museum. And if I can do nothing else but to get some of these papers into a more public way. And so as awful as it sounds that I'm just saying, here, take these, put them in your car, go away. I thought of you as more responsible than me. (laughs) This woman will get them where they need to go. Well, you know, because you were willing to lend them to us, I mean, we now have this, it it really is just, it's a, it's a contribution to history and it's, um, it's a treasure for the ages. Uh, You know, that's out there for everybody now and free um, through the Ohio State University Library. So thank you again. And I wonder, because you and I, you know, I've talked about this. You also just mentioned Mackachee Press. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what that is? That's another one of these rare newspapers. I, I wish I had it in front of me what the the line is. It's a it's a it's a family journal. Mackachee Press was published by Don and Abram at different times. You know, it's a, it's still a little confusing about who was in charge when and where it was located. And uh, but you know, Don had had some journalistic experience with his own paper before the Mackachee Press, and then this is a family newspaper that they publish, and it's about agriculture and politics and literature and general intelligence. I remember after they go through this whole list of other subjects, general intelligence, like because of everything else. And so it's a wonderful kind of hodgepodge and filled with, you know, they wrote a lot of the material themselves and it's not always clear when it's their voice because they used other names. And we tend to think that Don did more than Abram, but I'm not sure we're really correct about that. And it was apparently located in in different buildings at different times. We're still trying to figure this out. Uh, I've been through our copies many times just in trying to learn more about local history because it's a West Liberty newspaper. And so there are ads and worked with the local historical society. There's all kinds of information of who's selling what, when, and that's interesting. And then these fascinating political arguments and debates and discussions. So 
it's a pretty wonderful piece. And I remember when, uh, when we celebrated a hundred years of tours, we called it a century of tours. And I asked my daughter who was by that time a young adult, if she wouldn't um, do a blog for us and she didn't initially want to. And then I was saying something about the Maccachique press and she said, why is so why was their own newspaper? And then she said, it's a blog. And so she, uh, so I now tell people it was their blog. You know, this was how Abram and Don got to tell anybody who they could get to what they thought. And of course, JJ worked on the Maccachique press. And yeah, so this yeah, is, yeah. Yeah, this so. Time. You know, this this has been a topic you and I have talked about multiple times just recently, and uh, Ohio State is hoping to digitize the Maccachique Press, um, another one of these publications that doesn't exist anywhere else. Um, and so, you know, I think we have a lot more to learn about that. And I'm very curious. I don't know if you know anything about this at the present time. I don't. But I'm very curious about how that paper might have circulated or how far the circulation might have gone. Yeah. I, I don't know how far the circulation went. I have a sense that it was it was regional, but not beyond that. But yeah. I don't really know that. Well, we uh, might learn more about that in the coming years. Yeah. yeah, maybe so. And yes, we're really pleased to have this. I mean, it's hard. To, now, I'm having a little harder time letting this one go just because I keep looking things up in it. But I, I it, you know, they're all boxed and ready. So they, <laughs> they, they are ready. And I won't make you, you know, we're now much more professional. So we make arrangements with with the rare books library and we work with the archivists and we carry it very, but still Jim and I have taken things in our car down and dropped them off. So, you know, yeah, we'll okay. see that's the high point for me that day with my Volvo and getting to deliver that stuff and get that project moving. Um, now let's talk about some other projects we've done together, Margaret. Um, how about that series of salons that you've run? Well, the salons are great because again, I say, I love public programming and partly I've been able to keep the cast castles vibrant by seeking program grants. Uh, rather, rather, we weren't really in a position to be seeking research grants. And so there was, I, I, w- I was for six years um, on the board of the Ohio Humanities. And so one time I was going to be at a board meeting when Larry was coming down to speak to your students, I think. And so the, we d- and Larry and his wife, Susie. And so the four of us decided we would have breakfast before your classes and my board meeting. And I just remember a really wonderful restaurant and we didn't have very long and we were flitting around on lots of different subjects. I, I do recall we talked quite a lot about reconstruction uh, and and our sort of frustrations at the lack of ser- serious research on the reconstruction in so many different ways. And by that point, you know, I had been here for a while and had pretty much gotten sucked into all of these different topics that I wanted to know more and more about. And that was a strong one for me. So I remember that. And then I I was trying to say, shouldn't we do some kind of program? And this was hard because each of us are thinking about that in different ways. And and then it was in April, I believe. And then we spontaneously decided we were just going to have this program and we were going to do it over Memorial Day weekend because I had a grant that would give free admission. And we were, we had picked a day for free admission. And my big struggle as, as one running a museum is like, I don't want to close the museum. But on the other hand, we wanted to have discussions and, and you offered your graduate students to come and do their presentations. Um, and we kind of worked it out. So really within like 10 minutes, we came up with this concept yeah. at a date that was remarkably soon. Uh-huh. And I went home and kind of put it together. That's what I do, you know, put it together and figured it out. And in my concern about keeping people out of a room too long, because I, I felt like if people could be listening to these students and discussing discussing this material actually in these rooms, it would be more, more poignant. 
but I didn't want to close the rooms for hours. So I decided that every speaker needed to be in a different room and we needed to keep moving around. Now that just sounds ridiculous on some level, but it was so wonderful because I can remember that, you know, they'd start in the library and then there would be 15 minute presentations and then people would talk for five or six minutes and everybody would get up and go upstairs to another room. And I remember at one point walking upstairs, maybe for the second time and hearing of one of the participants say to another one, I think I would have liked college better if I could get up and move every 20 minutes. (laughs) That was funny. And it really became that. I think we decided to call it a salon because that seemed like the perfect word. Um, connecting what would have happened in the past and what happened in the present. And so um, at that point, my daughter Kate was here and she loves to design. So she designed a poster and called it the salon at Macuchi and we pulled it off and it was our free admission day. And, it, and hundreds of people came to the castle that day. It was astonishing. This was in the afternoon. And I remember your students came and they'd never been here before and they couldn't believe there were this many people in this historic house museum and most of the ones who participated in the salon came just for that. But I think we picked up a few extras and there would be some who would go to one session and not all of them and some who stayed for all six. So we spontaneously created a format. And then a few years later, after you'd been to Ireland, mm-hmm. isn't that the time you'd been to Ireland? And we yeah. decided this would be a nice play, uh, a nice format for you to share your research. And, and you should talk a little bit about Sean, but but Sean, this is like a buddy film where people just keep adding on. But <laughs> Sean had added on at that point. And I, yes, I re- yeah. remember he talked. So we did a second one. And then um, the the really sad circumstance that my husband and daughter and I, we, we had faced long before the second salon was that we were really not able to keep both of these buildings because we couldn't keep up with the maintenance. We couldn't keep up with the maintenance let alone the restoration. And so we had made a decision that we were going to sell Makochi. And it was it was an easier sell than Makochi because it had been sold before. It was hard for me to give up the most dominant and interesting character. You know, if I look at it like a dramatist, huh. Don's the star of this property. Abram is a great man and, you know, plowed a lot of fields, but Don is the political rabble rouser. And Uh, So we made a decision that we were keeping all of the Piat family furnishings and all of the papers. So anything that had been in Makuchi, we brought back over to Makuchi. And of course, I had a lot of fears about selling it. But um, fortunately, the people who bought it are working on restoring it. And I'll kind of come back to the second. But I just felt we had to do, in case we never got to do one again, we had to do the third salon at Makuchi, which we did very close to the end of our time there. I think that we... We sold it on October 19th. Yes, the auction date was already established when we did the last salon there. Yeah, and um, so that was, uh, I think that was a little bit painful for all of us. Yeah, and it was, it was uh, I always felt that if possible, I wanted you to speak in the library so you could be under the portrait of Sarah. Thank and, you so much. And, and actually for our listeners, Margaret, uh, can you tell us... Um, is there is there an image of those ceiling uh, portraits of, of Sarah and JJ that um, were you able to get a, a, a nice image of that before leaving that could uh, be be accessible to a public viewer? viewer? Ab- absolutely, yes. I mean, we we took photographs of everything, and we yeah we have a lot of material. Yeah, All right. Well, you know, let me. Uh, I have a couple of other things on my mind before we run out of time. Um, and if you'd like to, uh, turn to any topics we haven't gotten to, um, let's do that as well. But 
You mentioned a minute ago, um, you know, John is a dramatic, uh, Don is a dramatic character compared to Abram. Um, do you have any uh, records or, or family lore that indicates anything about um, about that relationship? Uh, you know, did Abram, was Abram a more private person? I mean, you mentioned he had fought uh, in the Civil War. Do we know what, um, what unit he was in and, and things like that? We actually know a great deal about that information. And I should use this as an opportunity to say that on May 21st, which is the 200th year since Abram was born, we are opening this building for free in that afternoon. It's a Friday afternoon, and we are going to be addressing Abram's life as a soldier, a farmer, an influencer, and a family man. Because he did also speak, and he did write, and he wrote poetry, and he became a Grange lecturer and was quite interested in progressive farming. And there, you know, Ella is, of course, influencing this biography, but it is filled with the connections for how close they were. One of my favorite quotes in this, though, says that, you know, they're young, they're young boys together. They're separated for a lot of their adult life. They're older men living in these, these mansions a mile apart. And there is a reference to them walking or riding their horses to see each other in the afternoons and sitting in each other's libraries and arguing about politics. And, you know, both sides of the family truly then and now love politics and like talking about it. Yeah. Well, you know, when, when I came out uh, last time around and, and looked at your copies of the Mackensheek press and thank you again for allowing me to, to work with them. I was really struck with um, how involved Abram was with Mackensheek Press. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Don is, is famous as a journalist, but there was Abram um, very much hands-on with that paper. And um, so I, I'm glad you're having a program about Abram and I, I look forward to learning more about him as I work more in that newspaper, which I hope to do uh, in the coming years. Yes, uh, I believe they were close and I, I never liked it. People who would jump to conclusions. They're competitive about buildings. They're comp- I, I don't see competition between them. I see them as very complimentary. Okay. Sorry. We had to take a brief technical break. Uh, Margaret and I were just talking about the um, cultural appropriation issues as they come up with talking about these lands. And so Margaret, let's get back into that topic. Well, it's a very important one to, to all of us and, you know, I think the first step, as I said, is we're we're admitting it. We're calling it that. That's what it is. Uh, we are uh, in, right now engaged in an interesting research project related to a cabinet, a cabinet of curiosities put in the castle when it was first opened for tours by Abram's son. And it is filled with artifacts connected to indigenous people. And we are working to understand these artifacts and interpret the cultures that produce them, the experiences of those people. And that has never been done here. So we are we are approaching that. We have a Shawnee elder we have worked with. We have grappled with, um, with the language, trying to get rid of the myths. Many of them started by my family and, you know, the legends. And so just I can't say enough how important it is to me to be honest about the fact that the only reason I ended up here or that any of these people we have been talking about had these fascinating lives on this farm is because the United States government killed the Shawnee people who were here and took the land from them. And that's the truth. So I present it that way. Well, that, um, you know, what a timely topic. Uh, I could imagine some really great 
programming coming out of that. Great programming for the general public as well as for scholars. Um, and because we're starting to um, wrap up now, Margaret, I just wanted to share quickly that um, I don't know if you're familiar with this poem by Sarah. There's no reason you would be. But Paula Bennett's edition um, included only um, several poems, three poems that Sarah published before she married JJ. So at that time, she was still Sally Bryan and publishing. She was a celebrity poet in her age, publishing in two of the most important national newspapers of the time, the Louisville Daily Journal and the New York Ledger. And uh, Paula has later said that she thinks the single biggest mistake she made um, early in the Piat recovery is that she didn't take the Sally Bryan poems seriously. She thought of them as juvenilia. Mm -hmm. And later she came to realize that that was a big mistake. And these are very important poems. We at Ohio State have been digitizing the early poems. We've digitized all the poems in the New York Ledger. They're available free to the public. We would like to digitize the Louisville Daily Journal poems, but again, very, very hard to find. There are all, I, I am not aware of any print copies left of that newspaper unless they're in somebody's attic. There is microfilm in one place that cannot be borrowed and I can't go work with it until the pandemic's over. So, um, but the reason I wanna mention this now is one of the three poems Paula included in her edition and she chose it because Paula's entire argument about Sarah is that she was essentially a political poet, is a poem she published in the Louisville Daily Journal in 1857. Um, so let's note, she's 21. She crashed onto the scene in the Louisville Daily Journal at 17, right? At 17, major national newspaper of the West. Anyway. This poem is called The Indian's Inquiry. And it's a, it's a political poem about indigenous people. And sh I'll send it to you later, Margaret. She's writing this as a 17-year-old woman in Kentucky who is a descendant in various complicated genealogical ways, um, who, who has a complicated um, lineage by marriage multiple times with Daniel Boone. Wow. And, and whose white ancestors came across the Cumberland Gap with Daniel Boone. And, and, and she knows it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are other poems later where she reflects on that, that legacy in, of course, Kentucky, which was known as the dark and bloody ground, uh, dark and bloody ground for, yeah. for the water of the indigenous people. So I just want to mention that poem since the topic came up. And uh, I really look forward to that programming, Margaret. Um, and and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot from it as will um, our other listeners. And, um, you know, we know this, Mark, we've known each other for a long time. Uh, we could just talk for hours and hours about all these topics. <laughs> and, you know, we, we have to wrap up uh, and, and uh, go live our lives and let our, let our listeners go, uh, go back to their jobs and so on. But thank you so much for spending time with us today on all this. You are uh, so welcome. And thank you for asking me. It's really been a privilege. And um, I think unless you have any final uh, words, Margaret, we will wrap up for today with thanks. And for uh, thanks again for all your support for the projects we're building at Ohio State. Oh, I'm grateful to you. All right, Margaret. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Discovering Sarah. 
America's Lost Great Writer is produced and recorded in Columbus, Ohio, with the support of the Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences Technology Services Studio, the Ohio State University Rare Books and Manuscripts Library, and the Ohio State University Knowledge Bank. Sound engineering by Paul Kotheimer, produced by Kayla Probion, and featuring the song The Heresy of Paraphrase by songwriter One Man Book. <laughs>